Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Ladies and gentlemen, October 26, 2023, I am Matt Belinsky. This is your weekly dose of sanity, the prevailing narrative, and as always, no shortage of craziness going on out there in the world, particularly with the Israeli-Palestinian situation in the Middle East. But we're going to take a break from that this week on this podcast. I'm going to be discussing current events, that situation heavily on my socials, primarily Twitter and Instagram. Both are at Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. But on this episode of the podcast, we're going to be having a discussion with an incredible guy named John Taffer. Many of you may be familiar with him from the show Bar Rescue, where he goes in and on an incredibly compressed timeline, takes the most failing bars, restaurants, and hospitality venues you could imagine and resurrects them nearly from the dead. And it's captivating programming. John's had an incredible career. Well beyond Bar Rescue. I mean, this guy got his start here in L.A. at a couple landmark venues, managing the Troubadour and Barney's Beanery. He started NFL Sunday Ticket, which is incredible. Um, he's an award-winning, you know, a, a best-selling author, uh, a noted speaker. He's anywhere he uh, across the hospitality landscape of the past 20, 30 years. He's going to pop up. He's got just a wealth of knowledge and wisdom from these experiences. And he's written a number of books, which I think are really insightful about how to be more successful in business, in life, how to be an elite communicator. So I will have a conversation with him coming up in just a moment, which I highly recommend you tune into. You're going to hear some amazing stories and gain access to no shortage of wisdom coming from John. Really enjoyed this chat coming up in just a moment. As always, if you find value in my content, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening, any comments, likes, upvotes, all incredibly helpful and much appreciated. So once again, if you're looking for my input on current events, world affairs, that's primarily on my social media this week. Podcast, a chat with John Taffer coming up in just a moment. In determining who the most valuable thinkers are, I think it's helpful to notice who has succeeded in multiple fields. People whose skills, talents, and insights translate across disciplines because their insights clearly apply no matter the situation. One such person is with me here today, John Taffer. John is a noted restaurateur, hospitality consultant, speaker, best-selling author, and of course, creator and star of the hit show Bar Rescue. John, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be here. So you're somewhat of a zealot of the, the hospitality world. Looking at your career, you pop up everywhere from national chain restaurants to malls, multinational hotel brands. But you got your start here in Los Angeles at landmark locations like the Troubadour and Barney's Beanery. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about those early days getting thrown right into the lion's den at the Troubadour. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's it, I went to college not for food and beverage or hospitality. I went to college for political science. And I'm glad I didn't go into that business. Look at look at these days, but uh, but I fell in love with the business, and I had some exposure when I was in college, and and then I I, I went to Los Angeles because I pursued a music career back then, and yes, I wound up being thrown into a situation at the Troubadour. I started as a doorman. Oh wow! And in sh an incredibly short period of time, I was general manager. I had never done anything like that before. I was a young punk, if you will. And the Troubadour taught me a lot. It taught me everything you shouldn't do <laughs> if you want to run a professional business. When I took over the Troubadour, we had about two inches of water in the kitchen. Oh, my God. And no money to fix the plumbing. The place was broke. And the owner, then Doug Weston, uh, uh, had recreational habits that drained the safe every night. And and uh, I got pallets and we threw the pallets on the floor in the kitchen and we all walked on the pallets with the water underneath us 
and eventually saved the money to get it repaired and such. But those were incredibly valuable educations for me. I also learned a lot about as a musician, and this became very important to me later in life. I've never spoken about this before, actually. I learned the power of music to an audience in venues like that. Mm -hmm. You know, I learned that you could take the same 10 songs, put them in a different order and create a completely different emotional ride and experience off music. You know, I learned the science of beats per minute content. I saw the faces of who went to what type of act, how they reacted to those acts, the kind of money they spent in relation to the acts. And I, I, I was able to connect money, environments, uh, uh, energy level, and, and a lot of these factors together. And, and as a final point, my minor in college was cultural anthropology. And to this day, I have a fascination with human behavior, even the behavior of elephants, the behavior of primates, and 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 uh, I'm very much uh, um, one who markets with a great understanding of our primal instincts mm -hmm. and uh, uh, human behavior. And you you talk about that a lot, human behavior, the study of, and you say that you're in the business of reactions, creating those reactions, creating anticipation, excitement, interest. And so, uh, and one, one, you know, of these observations that you mentioned that I thought was fascinating was that uh, across the world, pretty much when people enter a mall, 70% of them turn right. Right. Yeah. And that is a seemingly kind of trivial observation, but set, seems to say so much. So how what's your framework for you know, making these observations about life and noticing these patterns and then translating that into business activity? Yeah, you know, I've, I've, I've always been one who, who loves statistical things with regard to human behavior. That statistic that I mentioned came from work done by the ICSC, which is the International Council of Shopping Centers. Mm -hmm. And working with them many years ago when I had mall restaurants, we would look at those statistics very, very powerfully. So, you know, if 70% of the traffic of a mall enters one door, you really don't want to be to the left of that door. <laughs> you really want to be to the right of that door. And, and sometimes there's no difference in rent. Sometimes the landlord is sharp and there's a huge difference in rent. But, you know, these little tidbits of knowledge of human behavior uh, uh, go a long, long way. Let me throw another one at you that's fascinating. Absolutely. If, if I box an item on a menu, sales of that item will go up 20% overnight. Wow. If I shadow it, it'll go up 14 to 17%. If, if people have about a 6% propensity to order the top one and bottom two items on a list. So knowing how much money I make per item, I can just simply plug those holes and I can completely re-engineer the decision-making process to move your money and your choices where I want them to be. Now, that's not taking advantage of you because where I want you to be is where you're going to have the best time, the best experience. So it's in both of our interests for me to do that. No doubt. You're manipulating people into their best instincts and their best experiences yeah. without a doubt. And to that fact, and just going back to your point about music, um, in terms of, and this is something that might not come, you, you were a musician. It, music yeah. came somewhat naturally to you. For yeah. uh, us who weren't naturally musically inclined, and I think this is something that at least I discovered later on is, you know, and music really does resonate with people on a cellular level it's something that has has existed with us since the beginning of time and you know and the power of that and it's like what would you say in determining uh in in all your experiences through these various different types of hospitality you know what are your observations about why music it, why music is such a determining factor in in that ex, in creating positive experiences or getting the reactions that you want out of people you know, uh, music, uh, uh, we look, I used to have a patent uh, years ago. I had the only patent ever issued by the federal government 
to achieve a desired ambiance in the hospitality property. And I had a database in a company called Music Plan. Digital music changed this. In Music Plan, we would do a demographic analysis. Your business choose the music that demographically connected and create a music format and playlists and everything. And we would use beats per minute strategies and beats per minute curves. And we'd have things like the weave, which was a certain type of music program and left turns and all of these kind of things. And the difference between the musician and myself is I was focused on the reaction to the audience. What made them eat more? What made them drink more? What made them chew faster so I could turn the table faster? Right. And all of these things can be impacted by music. But in almost every case, I'm trying to play a song that emotionally connects with you. If I can play the song that you were hearing when you got your first kiss, I freaking nailed it. Now, now. That's, of course, a very genetic 50,000-foot type of a statement. But we all connect with music. When you walk into a bar, a restaurant, or a nightclub, if the music is wrong, nothing is going to be right after that. Uh, if you're a country guy, don't go to a metal bar. If you're a metal <laughs> guy, don't go to a country bar. You don't see the two sitting next to each other in the same bar ever. Yeah. So music defines who we are in very many cases. And, and it defines a certain envelope for us. And we tend to move within that envelope. The music is one of the definers of that envelope, I believe. And in looking how that's evolved when, you know, music media, the intersection of music in the hospitality space and how that's evolved, um, it was it seems to be in, different in the era where r more traditional rock and roll and pop music was dominant. So it must be interesting challenge for you to take on in the recent era with electronic music um, is or electronic bass music is more popular and more of the contemporary offerings, which doesn't necessarily fit so well in an in a seated hospitality venue. Uh, you're you're absolutely correct. Uh, and sometimes uh, uh, the gangster orientation of current music mm -hmm. uh, uh, and certain attributes of it do, do not fit in those types of environments. But, you know, we don't play music. We play reactions. We achieve it through music. That's the science of reaction management. So I'm not playing songs. I'm playing reactions. So I'm going to watch the room's reaction to every song. This one stays. This one goes. This one stays. This one goes. I'm a nutcase about this stuff. You know, the music in Taffer's Tavern isn't just selected, it's freaking curated. <laughs> so, so, so I work really hard at creating this and this understanding. And you're exactly right. Many, many years ago when I ran nightclubs, I had all these music genres I could play with and I could manipulate my crowd. I could even have a country crowd on Thursday night and a dance crowd on Friday night. Well, today it all revolves around hip hop. But you know, one thing I have found, and lately I've been watching some uh, reaction videos on YouTube of music, mm -hmm. and I love watching young hip-hop people listen to music from the 60s and 70s that they've never heard before. Amazing. And some of these reaction videos are powerful because the great song breaks through, <laughs> and often they start like this and they, they don't like the band and they don't know anything about it and blah 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 and they listen to some song that they would never listen to i'm going to be crazy a beach boy song or, or something and reaction my point is this great music creates great reactions and and in some cases i want to stay in your box in other cases i want to step out every once in a while because that's where the excitement can be
Absolutely. No, I love that observation, particularly interesting. As you mentioned, hip hop artists or, or hip hop crowds who might come from a different background and seeing the kind of universal universality of some of what you see in music with the reactions to older. I'll, I'll send you after this that there's a video that was recently released with the rapper Method Man from Wu-Tang Clan. And it's him acknowledging that his first hit song he's like, yeah, that was that was me grabbing some stuff from the Rolling Stones and Holland Oats and then showing <laughs> showing the, the pieces that he grabbed. And it's just it's fascinating. Um, and so you mentioned Taffer, Taffer's Tavern, and I want to get to that in a second, but Taffer's Tavern is you know, a, a really fundamental piece of, techno- of reacting to tr- technological disruption and you know, innovation in the hospitality world. So, but I want to track back to another you know, aspect of your career that I, I think many, many people might not know of, where you had to be uh, uh, incredibly innovate, innovative and you were a trailblazer in response to some dislocation, where you went you know, after your LA experiences running some of these landmark venues, um, you went into the hotel world because hotels that hadn't really focused on food and beverage or had to integrate restaurant brands in, into their spaces um, after the tax code was changed in the 80s, which uh, it starts uh, prevent, then prevented them from uh, deducting a ton of their expenses. All of a sudden, they had to turn a profit. All of a sudden, they have to be growth-oriented. All of a sudden, they had to get creative, and you help them get creative in starting to bring restaurant brands into the, hospi- into the, the hotel space. Uh, boy, you've done your homework. Yeah, I did. Uh, <laughs> I became vice president of a hotel company based in Chicago. And you're right, that was the mid-80s. And uh, I started my company at that time just as those tax codes were changing. Mm. And my first client was the company I worked for when I left. So I had a client base when I started. And we had to teach, you know, they were guest amenities then, restaurants. They weren't profit centers. So we, I'm the guy who closed all the rooftop restaurants. I used to scream and yell, who wants to go up there and rotate? <laughs> uh, and, and I was the one who created the pop-outs on the side of the hotel buildings with their own awnings and gave them a national chain kind of a look. And I was the first guy to put a franchise in a franchise with the Ruth Chris's restaurant oh inside God. the Holiday Inn Hotel in Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco. So, you know, I was a guy who looked at Holiday Inn and many of those companies says, guys, you're not good at this. Food and beverage isn't what you do. You live for lumens and guest rooms, uh, not the character of, of food specifications. So we convinced them to bring outsiders and do lease deals and franchise and franchises. And I was very uh, much in the forefront of that whole movement uh, of moving hotel food and beverage profitable. But, you know, before that, I also ran Grossinger's upstate New York in the Catskill Mountains, which was one of the largest hotels in the world. We had three nine-hole golf courses, our own ski mountain, our own lakes, toboggan runs, and uh, our own airport, first snowmaking equipment in America. So I had a pretty rich background of working in hotels uh, uh, when I went down that path. And so that there's also been a super interesting evolution of that over the years, right? And, you know, kind of towards the end of the last century, early 21st century, you had this Ian Schrager boutique hotel thing where all of a sudden, you know, there's, I don't know how many units, but it was smaller hotels, chicer, more hospitality oriented. They wouldn't have a Ruth's Chris in them. They'd have a more fashionable upscale restaurant in them. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then that there's current hospitality in 2023 is a bit of a whole feels like a bit of a holdover from that era, but then also the the idea of these uh, hotels as their own little worlds now where they have to include everything from, you know, nightclubs to their their own, you know, uh, native restaurants. Um, and I, I don't know, I'd, I'd be interested in your thoughts on, you know, how you see the hotel business and let's call it the major metropolitan areas in, in the 2020s. 
You know, if you look at all the brands under the Marriott uh, uh, umbrella or the Hilton umbrella or the quality umbrella, uh, uh, um, you, you, there's so many brands now, you don't even know half of them. They'll build three hotels and call it Staybridge. They'll build five other hotels and call it Suite to Home. And, and, and none of the properties that they're building, though, in most cases are full service hotels or luxury hotels. Uh, they're very few and far between now. They're building hotels, and what happened in the hotel industry years ago, and Holiday Inn created this when they when they actually ro- rolled out Hampton, who's now owned by Hilton, but interestingly was owned by Holiday Inn. Uh, uh, they, Holiday Inn determined that they were losing about four to five dollars per guest head on food and beverage when they did the math. So they said, "To hell with it. Let's give away breakfast. It'll cost us two fifty a head." <laughs> and and take the cash registers out of the place and be done with it because 70% of guests only want breakfast anyway. So the logic was, okay, I got a fixed cost now for $2.50 a head. I can give all my guests a nice breakfast. I don't have to have servers and all that kind of stuff. I don't need a rest. And that changed the world. That cal- Now, so many hotels have that breakfast formula today, but it was driven by those economics. Uh, 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 of understanding I got a fixed cost per guest. I can build that into my guest room rate, provide that perceived value to the guests. It's a win-win for everyone. So most hotel development now falls into that type of a category domestically. It falls into value-based propositions over luxury-based propositions. Mm. Seems to be the case. And I think the pandemic has put us, has created a perception around the more value-oriented uh, marketplace, in my view. Yeah, yeah, it does seem like they're not opening up. I mean, you've got your your four seasons, you've got your in LA. I'm looking mostly at the LA market, which I think is a yeah. terrible hotel market, which is shockingly bad for a city of this size. Um, at four seasons, you got your couple of your your institutions like the Beverly Hills Hotel, but like there's no, you know, I, I, it seems like those brands, maybe you could, if you have any insight on this, um, seems like a ton of inflation in the luxury hotel market since the pandemic. And I mean, it's understandable somewhat, but the used to be able to get a room at a four seasons at a, in a, in a big city, a a, a desirable city, $600 was the entry point, right? You got the worst room there for six to $800. I mean, you can't get anything under a thousand dollars at one of the five store hotels anymore. Like anywhere. It's crazy. Yeah. I don't want to mention brands because I'm sitting in one of them right now. Totally. But, 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 uh, uh, you know, luxury hotel brands, when you look at the concentration or ratio of employees to guests, have a far higher ratio than other other uh, quality points in the hotel chain. So when you look at that, they have the highest burden of A, getting employees, B, training employees. Today, we're struggling with getting employees. So two things are going on in the business. First of all, inflationary aspects, you're exactly right, are, are a huge impact, certainly at higher interest costs, all these kinds of things. But the fact of the matter is we can't get the physical employees to provide the level of service that we used to provide. During the pandemic, room service stopped. Then room service had to be in disposable stuff. So you check into one of those five-star hotel brands, Four Seasons, Ritz-Carlton, uh, uh, Waldorf Astoria, et cetera. And you check into the hotel. You order room service. It's dropped at your front door in a paper bag. You got a plastic knife and a fork. You're eating your egg out of a cardboard box. Pandemic ends. Three months later, still getting a cardboard box. Six months later, still getting a cardboard box. Finally, I pick up the phone and I call the general manager and I say, listen, and I say the name of the brand. I'll say X for the point of this. 
When are you going to be X again? <laughs> How long does this continue? How long do the excuses continue? When do you become a five-star hotel again? Because you got a five-star rating, but this is not five-star service. I don't even have a knife I can use to cut my steak if I can get one. Or I have to go down. So, so it's just starting to, I believe, approach the service levels of pre-pandemic uh, 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 quality levels just about now. And a lot of hotels in a lot of cities are still struggling with people. So uh, uh, it's a real problem. And we, when we talk about Taffer's Tavern, I'll share with you, that was the uh, uh, inspiration to create it, honestly. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. As a segue and seeing as yeah. you having to be at the forefront of disruption in the hotel business back in the day, now you're trying to be at the forefront of disruption um, through, you know, both labor and technology. And I guess how those two kind of intersect in the bar and restaurant space. And, you know, I'd love to hear about what, what about that informed Taffer's Tavern. Yeah, you know, it started about six years ago. And uh, if you remember back six years ago, Trump was president pre-pandemic. <laughs> the economy was doing good. Mm -hmm. uh, unemployment was very, very low. The restaurant industry was really struggling to find people. It was a nightmare for us. But the fact is, if you look at the National Restaurant Association and, and the work with them over 20, 25 years, the restaurant industry has always had a labor problem. We've never had an abundance of employees. We always have a lot of turnover, you know, a lot of young people, et cetera. So, so it's never been a, a comfortable area for us, let's say. So during those years, it was even worse. So I said to myself, boy, could I, could I, could I create a kitchen model using technology that uses half the kitchen staff of a regular kitchen for a full service, casual dining restaurant? And could I do that and have a full menu and great quality? That was the premise. So then I said, okay, to do that, I, I don't want to start everything raw. I want to look at various food technologies and ways to create and bring product that is in a controlled fashion, less cooking on site. And I go and I spend two years in test kitchens. Not an easy process. Wow. No. I'm trying every technology of frozen foods. And, this and, that. and I land on sous vide. And sous vide, for your listeners who don't know, it is a French cooking technique. It's a Michelin five-star cooking technique. You take, let's say, a steak, a fine quality steak. You put it in a plastic bag, you seal it with no oxygen with the seasonings, and you put it in a water oven with circulating water at 135 degrees. That water cooks that steak at exactly medium rare. If you leave it in that water for two hours, it's still medium rare once it attains that level, right? So it doesn't dry, it doesn't overcook, it stays, and it cooks in its own juices. Now I take that sous vide steak, I take it out of its bag, but it looks like the center of a piece of prime rib. It's all pink. It doesn't have any charring. So I take that steak. I put it in a high-tech oven that hits it with ultraviolets and everything to sear the outside of it flawlessly. Mm -hmm. Now I have an engineered medium-rare steak. <laughs> I have an engineered crust, both using traditional cooking techniques. There's no microwaves or any of that kind of stuff involved. I'm bringing it to temperature naturally. And the quality blew me away. I said, can we do this with fish? So we sous vide the fish and then we drop it in the front off the charts. Can we do it with chicken? 
Well, you want to try the best chicken in the world, sous vide the chicken, and then bread it and fry it. Oh, my God. So we landed on sous vide. And then we realized, I don't need a stove. I don't need a hood. Mm-hmm. I don't need gas. <laughs> So we worked with a technology company called Middleby, who owns about 65 hospital uh, equipment brands, I should say, like Turbo Chef, uh, 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 Frymaster, things like that. We worked with their engineering uh, company, created a real partnership. And uh, working with my food technology, we worked with them on preparation technologies. And then we worked with Shift4, who's a, a transactional partner of ours, who owns POS systems and, and transactions, credit card transactions. Uh, to create our transactional systems and integrating all that with our technologies and son of a gun. When we were done, rather than 14 minutes for that steak to cook, cooked in six. I had half the ticket times. I had half the people in the kitchen. On a Saturday night with a 300-seat restaurant, there's two people in the kitchen. And here's the kicker. It's not 120 degrees in there. It's air-conditioned. Nobody's screaming and yelling at each other. The vibe is incredible. It's the kind of place you'd want to work versus a screaming, chaotic kitchen at 120 degrees. So we found, uh, uh, and then we took this technology and built a tavern concept around it, upscale tavern dining. And then I did something I had never done before, put my brand on a business model. And I wanted to prove out three things. It was scary, I got to tell you. I wanted to prove out, A, that the brand would bring people to the restaurant. Two, that the sous vide and that our cooking technologies would create quality and consistency uh, 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 that would bring customers back. And three, that the economic model would provide an advantage to the business that our prime costs, and I don't want to get too technical, would be lower and such. And now we proved out all three. So now we're we're pretty aggressive in starting to write our franchises and such to to, uh, roll it out around the country. But it was, uh, uh, we had the only restaurant in America, to my knowledge, with no stove, no gas, no hood. And, and our food's great. No, the, sous, the couple times I've had sous vide, I imagine, you know, you putting your stamp on that and, you know, sous vide by John Tafford would be fan, phenomenal. And, and another one of these things that everyone looks at and says, wait, why, why didn't anyone, anyone think to do that at scale before this right now? That's, I say I say that often. How come nobody did this before? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and looking looking at, at, you know, more holistically technological and operational disruption in the hospitality world, you know, I'd love your, your thoughts on, on what else you're seeing right now. I mean, one thing that I'm noticing that the kind of you know set off something interesting to me is that you know I travel in Europe sometimes and most fast casual in Europe is uh, uh, has ordering kiosks almost universally, right? And it reminds me of, you know, many moons ago when I was studying abroad in Europe and I'm like, wait a second, everyone has a phone and they're doing this thing called text messaging. And then t- it was two years ahead of when everyone in the United States was text messaging. Um, and so I n- almost never see the ordering kiosks, only maybe in Vegas at a food court, but almost never in, in the U.S. For the first time, it's just a random kind of multi-unit but not national brand uh, uh, brand venue in LA last week I saw an ordering kiosk where you know the person at the counter is like no go I'm not taking your order go put it in over there um is that going to be implemented uh more widely do you see that it, that in the works and is this it, you know that a lot of people not to get political about it but to you know the 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 general uh, uh the discourse is okay labor's too difficult it's becoming too costly so they're going to find technology to take the place of human labor is that generally where you see the things headed 
Well, that's a corporate strategy that you just said that makes economic sense in today's environment. You mm-hmm. bet. If I can replace you with a machine and AI, and I think that radio hosts are going to be at some point, <laughs> you know, replaced with AI, et cetera. Yeah. And, and it's funny, the other day I was playing around and I said, I, I asked an AI, give me an, an interview of me with Gordon Ramsay on my podcast. And it gave me a great interview. Yeah, yeah. It's too <laughs> it didn't need me stuff. at all. <laughs> it didn't need me at all. Anyway, so, so uh, to answer your question, I'll say something that no other person says. There's one of three elements to every restaurant and every menu in the world. Either it's spontaneous, it's convenience, or it's destination. Uh, it, when you're building a restaurant in today's world, you have to say, what am I building? If it's spontaneous and convenience, that kiosk makes all the sense in the world. If I'm building a destination or something that's experiential, then that kiosk takes away my my connectivity, if you will, my human connectivity, if you will. And, and you know, I share with you that when we, when Gallup and organizations like that do studies on what causes people to come back to restaurants, pricing is very, very low on the list. Mm-hmm. People don't leave a great restaurant and say it was expensive. They only leave a shitty restaurant and say it was expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, 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 so the fact of the matter is it comes back to quality and connectivity in most environments. So I'm resistant of front of the house technology. I want somebody walking up to your table. I want them telling you what their favorite menu item is. I want them getting you excited. I want them having you, you know, make sure that you order a drink and a, and a food item because that's where you're going to have the most fun. I like that connectivity. I don't want you ordering on a kiosk. On the other hand, in the back of the house, I'm as technical as one can get. But I don't like to put technology between me and the customer. I like to put technology where it helps me support the customer experience. So to finish that scenario, so in Taffer's Tavern, since I'm spending so much less in the back of the house, I actually have more employees in the front of the house because I commit. I'm committed to that connectivity because I'm a reactions guy. Yeah. I'm not going to get a reaction from your kiosk like I will a great dynamic employee. And I I believe in that humanity and, and that aspect of our business. I'm troubled when I see it go away. Now, in Europe, some of them are quick. They're easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 it makes sense in those environments, but but not for a neighborhood tavern. Not for a place that its whole basis is connectivity. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, I, I would imagine is part of the reason why you've been so, you know, so successful at points of disruption because that distinction, right? Front, you know, uh, operational and technological uh, uh, automation, front of the house versus back of the house. Everybody's, most people are thinking about it front of the house. Oh, you know, let's workers at McDonald's. But really, like, you're, you're trying to preserve the value from the front of the house personnel by fu- and then find the efficiencies in back of the house. So that's super, super interesting. Yeah, we work very hard. For example, uh, on our human resources hiring, we hire for experience. We hire for personality, not experience. I don't care about experience ever. Only for personality. We teach our employees to be personally, personally dynamic. I hired you because because of your personality. Don't suppress it. Don't be. Hello, my name is John. I'm your server. Second, we teach interactive dynamics. Very important. Go to a fine dining restaurant. The lights are low, and the waiter walks slow. Go to Denny's. The lights are bright. The waiter walks fast. If that waiter walked faster in the steakhouse, that steak isn't worth $60 anymore. <laughs> Think about point. it. Yeah, Pace drives value. Lighting drives value. So when one engineer is a guest experience, you have to consider personal dynamics, interactive dynamics, mechanical dynamics, as we call it. Uh, 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 um, all of these things create a perceived experience 
and value. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. And absolutely to your point about this in employee orientation and training and how and the types of things that can translate across industries that are not just necessarily in, let's call it restaurant and bar hospitality, but in, you know, it's another talk that I, uh, of yours that I heard you mentioned how, you know, Disney's success is no accident in that seeing the way, seeing the, their approach to depth of training to their employees and how everything, every aspect of how their employees uh, behave at their jobs is uniquely branded Disney from how they describe customer service and interactions and how, you know, there's no weak links, even down to the janitor. They, they know what purpose the janitor serves and how, you know, and how the janitor is going to interact with customers in reality. And they even put their stamp on that. They do. They understand the janitor gets more questions than anyone. Uh, uh, look, I'm about as big a Disney fan as you can get, you know, you go, you go to Disney and, and, uh, um, you don't deal with employees. You deal with cast members. They're not wearing uniforms. They're wearing costumes. They're not working in station one, station two, station three. They're working in stage one, stage two, stage three. And they're trained to be performers on stage, wearing a costume, providing an experience. Nobody's better than them. Uh, again, I don't mention names. Go down the street to their biggest competitors. It's half the price and half the people. So <laughs> there is the case when something's great, you don't complain about price. You know, you, you find a way to experience greatness. And, you know, I, I, I have a, a, in all disclosure, I'm close to, to Disney. There, A lot of my friends work in Imagineering and such. So, so I'm biased, but I think they're the best in the world when it comes to connectivity and creating experiences and that whole premise of dynamics that we were talking about. Certainly. And the results do speak for themselves. I am turning yeah. to some more of the, the general principles of management, business, personal relations that you've shown yourself to be such an expert at. Um, you know, one, one thing that's always interesting to me, particularly about where you've, you know, decided to focus your efforts is on turnarounds, is on throwing yourself into situations that are steeped, currently steeped in failure and, you know, rewiring all the habits, the attitude, the morale uh, to take that from failure into success. It's kind of the base, to a certain extent, the basis of bar rescue. But, you know, I'd love to, to get your insight into when you are steeped in a situation that whatever is being done, is yielding the wrong result. So that means however this these people spend 16 to 18 hours of their day, there's probably a good share of the those habits of how they're they're spending their time that are not working and how you go from the DNA kind of you know uh, recalibrate that and rewire that so they're 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 behaving each day aimed towards the right habits on a minute to minute hour to hour basis. You know, uh, it's interesting. I've never been asked that question in that way. It allows me to provide a very different answer than I normally would. You know, before Bar Rescue, I was a consultant and I did hundreds and hundreds of accounts all over the world. People never called me and say, hey, John, things are going great. I need a consultant. <laughs> they always called me and said two things. John, things are not going well. And by the way, I don't have any money to fix it. <laughs> I need you to come in and do magic. Yeah. So I typically was thrown into those situations for a big corporation where they threw me in there. Sometimes the people at the property didn't even want me there. Corporate shoved me down their throat, if you will. So they're like this. They're resenting me. What the hell is this guy here? He's looking over my shoulder. So I walked into hostile environments on property. I walked into no resources. I walked into to nightmares. And I did that for years. 
And, you know, I, I learned how to use my education to my advantage. For example, you're that food and beverage director or manager who doesn't want me there. You know, it was interesting about me being here, George, <laughs> is that if I'm successful, it's your success. You're the hero. But if I fail, corporate sent me here. Kaffir screwed it up, not you. You can't lose. You can only win on this deal. Work with me, man. Let's make this a win. And I would have to deal with their personalities, not their business experience. And then I got to figure out how to get at somebody. You know, is it through pride? Is it through fear? Uh, is it through challenge? Uh, uh, how do I inspire people? How do I change them? And sometimes, look, sometimes there's no fixing stupid. Yeah. Sometimes there's no fixing attitude. You got to you got to do what you have to do to make to move uh, things forward. But uh, uh, all of those years of walking into those hostile environments and those money losing situations without resources uh, uh, is what set me up to be successful in bar risk. A quick story, for example, a, a, a donut chain calls me up and says, John, we got a problem. We're selling franchises to a bunch of new Americans. They don't speak English so well. A lot of them are we need you to come up with a marketing opening plan to support these stores. And by the way, they don't spend money and we don't have any. So, you know, for years now, those stores would get boxes when they opened from our offices. And in those boxes were picket signs, poles and the big cardboard sign. And the picket signs would say, donuts too fresh, coffee too good, restrooms too clean, prices unfair to competition. And they would pick it in front of the restaurant for the first week that they were open. And it was a donut shop, so mornings meant everything, particularly in the mornings. And we, we brought revenues up by about 40% for opening stores using what we called positive picketing. So my point is you don't need a thick checkbook. You need a thick idea book to be successful in my business because a lousy idea with all the money in the world is still a lousy idea. So I learned how to come up with cheap ideas at a very, very uh, uh, young position in this industry. And that's what armed me uh, to walk into Bar Rescue with confidence and an ability to do this. I don't think a food, typical food and beverage guy could walk into that environment and do it quite the same. Once you pass the baton off to a client who needs to then maintain that success, how do you position, what can they do to maintain that success when their natural inclination without you was for failure? Yeah, you know, uh, uh, I say if they were rocket scientists, I probably wouldn't have been there in the first place. So I recognize <laughs> that they haven't been good decision makers for one reason or another. Sometimes they're drinking. Sometimes they don't care enough. Sometimes they're just inexperienced. Sometimes they care too much and it becomes personal. There's a whole myriad of reasons why they're failing. But in most cases, a uh, great many most cases, I could build these people to Taj Mahal and they'd fail. Mm -hmm. So fixing the bar is easy for me. I can look at a space and come up with a design and I can look at the demos and the competition and come up with a concept and I can do all those things. How do I inspire this person? How do I change them? You know, I dealt with people that drank too much and I put pictures of their children on the bottom of their glasses. So every time they went to take a drink, they stared at their kids. I put pictures of their home in their office on the wall, the home that they're about to lose. I would do all these things to bring their brain back to why they're doing this <laughs> and to focus on because somehow they lost touch with it. Somehow they made decisions to put their family at risk. And, and that's what is, is my real inspiration in Bar Rescue with those family situations. So I have to change the way they think. And to do that isn't easy. So I have to challenge them and challenge them and challenge them and challenge them until they start to doubt themselves.
Then I have to really go at them until their brain cracks open just a little bit. Then I can walk in and then I can start to teach them and show them. And and most of the time I'm successful pre-pandemic, our numbers were about 68% success factor still open two years later. Uh, uh, Of course, the pandemic changed that a little bit. I know when I leave if they're going to do it or not. And let's face it, let's say it's a ship. I can write the ship. I can paint it. I can put new motors in it. I can give them the greatest navigation equipment. I can hand them a map, but I can't stop them from driving it into a reef. (laughs) (laughs) I do do my best and I don't look back. I used to take it personally when they failed. I don't now. You know, I do the best I can when I'm there. Uh, uh, We really train them hard. My experts and I, Unlike a lot of other TV shows similar to mine, we really do go in as consultants. We really do train them. We really do teach them. It isn't for the cameras. It's for them. I like to say we're not following the cameras. The cameras are following us. And and I think that's why we've been on TV so long. No doubt. And to a more practical prong of of your kind of personal development and business skills into the time management, because I heard you describe your your assessment uh, and and filming schedule for some of these bar rescues. And it's really an amazing schedule on which you do this. Um, and then, you know, I, I imagine in in trying to ca- coach and counsel these people on why what they were doing before didn't work and what they need to do for it now to work. And one of the one of the, the key factors that you mentioned is time management skills. So you're a busy guy. You've started all these businesses. The amount of output that you've had over the years has been incredible. You know, anything that you can teach us or, or insight you can give us into time management, how to juggle lots of different projects and how you counsel people on that. Well, let me just share with the bar rescue for a moment, the cycle bar rescue. I'm there for four days. I get there the first day at five or six o'clock at night. I get literally a 60 second briefing. I never been there before. never met these people before. I'm told John and George own this bar. You know, they're losing $400,000. They got enough money to make it two more months. George lost his house. John's about to, they're ready to kill each other. That's all I know. I go in, do my recon. You see all that on television. I don't know what's going to happen until I go in there. Is it tough? Is it not? At the end of recon, what you don't know is we put all the employees and everybody in vans in the parking lot. I go in and design the bar that night. I got about an hour. So I'm given a demographic report. I'm given a psychographic report. I'm given a competitive report that I've designed that we print up. I look at all that. I look at the space. I come up with a concept. I come up with the major design elements. We go home. The next day, we do training and stress test on TV. Off TV, I got to finish the design from wallpaper to bar stools to flooring to back bar designs to logos. By the end of day two, at the end of stress test, the the logo has to be to the sign company. The recipes have to be done. The food orders have to be in. The drinks have to be done. The food drink orders have to be in. All the design has to be done. Everything has to be ordered by the end of the second day. After stress tests, we start construction. That's about 11, 12 o'clock at night on day two. We build it that night, the night of day two, the day of day three, the morning of day four. We finish it about three, four o'clock on day four. I reveal it as soon as the sun goes down. I spend two hours in a bar and we leave. So in four days, I get there. I assess the situation. I come up with the concept, the logo, the recipes, the, the name, the training. I get it open and I motivate and I incentivize people. I tell this story in corporate speaking environments all the time. And I look at the audience, whether they're insurance agents or whatever they are. And I always, after, after I tell the story, I always say the same thing. What the hell takes you guys so long to do everything? <laughs> and man, before Bar Rescue, it would have taken me 60 days to do that. Mm-hmm. So from that, and you know, I do a lot of public speaking and a lot of corporate consulting outside of hospitality. And we created something called the PAP program, the Project Acceleration Program. 
And the premise is there's nothing that happens in a corporate environment that can't happen 10 to 20% faster. Nothing. So the fact of the matter is if every single employee embraces this and every single employee says every project I have, every initial I have, every objective that I have, I'm going to achieve them or accomplish them 10% faster, 15% faster. What would happen to the U.S. economy? What would happen to the stock values of these companies? And what would happen to the careers of those employees? Up and so to the right. Time is the ticket <laughs> that creates change and difference more than anything else. Because when we have time and manage that time, that's when we can be creative. You know, I tell people all the time, don't just work in your business, work on your business. But if you're buried and working in it every minute of every day and frazzled, you never get to work on it. But when you work on it is when the magic happens, not when you're working in it. So that's time management. That's managing your time in it to make sure you have time to be on it. The magic, the ticket to everybody listening is time management. If you give yourself the time to learn, you give yourself the time to grow, the time to research, the time to be creative, if you allocate time effectively, magic happens. And if you're sitting there, if you're thinking, you know, uh, John Taffer on a, on a Tuesday morning, attacking a number of projects, there are six to eight projects going, a couple of them are in different, uh, in different industries, what would be the number one principle that informs you how you determine what to attack and when? Well, I, I, I think of projects as balls on my desk, if you will. Every day, I want to move every ball forward. I don't let a day go by that I don't take a look at each ball, <laughs> move each ball forward. If I don't move a ball forward on a particular day, there's a reason why it's going to move tomorrow or it's going to move Friday or there's a, there's a meeting that's happening or something. But I can't ignore my balls. I don't mean to be, that's a strange thing to say it that way, but I can't ignore these, these, I must move them forward and I must have an understanding of each. So I got a great team around me. I got a great president of my company this morning. Before I came on with you, we did a little project review. We had a Tapper's Tavern discussion. We talked about our whiskeys. Uh, 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 we then talked about general things going on in television and production and other things that we're doing, consulting projects. And, and I talked about each one of those balls. <laughs> I know which ones are going to move today. Make no mistake, a few hours from now, I'm going to call again. <laughs> and I'm going to check on them and make sure. You see, in my situation, I'm here making television. It's very in invasive. So I'm almost in my own world the next four days. I'm starting an episode tonight. So I have to arm my team and empower my team to make decisions and move things forward while I'm in the black hole, if you will, of production. Uh, uh, so so uh, uh, when... I'm not in production is when I give them all that ammunition. I make sure they have the financial resources, the intellectual resources around them, the empowerment, the confidence. When they make mistakes, they don't get fired. They get taught. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's all about understanding that, that I'm sitting here with you today because a lot of people got me here. I never lose sight of that. <laughs> no man is on an island, right? I mean, you know, no man's sure. his own vi village. I mean, you cannot do it without, you know, coming from, I come from a legal background. It's a little more of a specialist professional services. It doesn't naturally lend itself to team building and delegation. If there's anything that I've noticed that, okay, wait a second, this is a space I need to fill in. You know, these are, these are powerful. These are powerful lessons that they don't teach you in the general scholastic environment. Um, and, and fascinated to see how you approach it. And then a lot of friends that are, there are athletes, like even Mark, Sean Lynch and on our episode that we did together, even 
uh, Marshawn said, man, you should have been an NFL coach. <laughs> I get that a lot because I have this ability to show you what you did wrong. We'll curse you out, call you out in front of your wife or your partner, right? Really go crazy on and then put my arm on you 20 minutes later and motivate you. At the end of the day, if I discipline you or teach you without motivating you, it's all in vain. So everything has to end on that motivational element. The tail of everything is motivation. You can't, you need you need that as the firepower, as the jet fuel to keep on going. And and to that point, I think that that leads into uh, a lot of the lessons described in your most recent best-selling book, The Power of Conflict, because this is something that I've always been keenly aware of. In that, um, find you know take so many people have a natural once again a natural inclination to avoid conflict and avoid a situation that could be uncomfortable but you in this in this book have described and and really got into the blood and guts of why these are opportunities for advancement for progress and for growth in in kind of uh, finding you know as you described constructive conflict and approaching these situations with poise and integrity would love to hear you describe you know your, your thinking behind this and the principles espoused in that book a friend of mine who's a famous doctor on television once said to me, he has a friend who's the exact opposite of him. And he once said to me, and uh, I'll tell you who it is. As Dr. Phil said to me, he's a dear friend of mine, said to me, uh, you don't have to love everything about somebody to love them. And man, and that's an example of a great human being to say something like that and understand, you know, uh, uh, so many of my friends are politically uh, uh, opposite to me. Uh, orientations are opposite to me uh, 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 and I love them as much as the people that are the same as me and you know I've learned that that you know I think of little Johnny who believes in something he's 15 16 years old and his parents teach him never to speak up because his belief is different than theirs whether it's a political view a religious view whatever it is it's important to little Johnny that view and not only is he not allowed to discuss it or, or grow it or challenge it? He's not even allowed to mention it. And then you look at the political environment that we live in today. And no matter what side of the fence you're on, you better say the right thing at the right time or you're going to be canceled or shut down or other words. So everything around us is compressing little Johnny's ability to just say what he believes doesn't mean little Johnny is a bad human being. Johnny wants to, and so now little Johnny grows up this way, suppressing his beliefs his whole life. Now I'm going to go much further than this. Then a guy like Adolf Hitler comes along. <laughs> Whoa, took a turn. I've taken a big turn here. Yeah. And then public speech starts to get suppressed. Mm -hmm. And then more social pressures on. And now little Johnny's 30 years old and he still doesn't say what he believes and his values are still meaningless and he's still crushed by these forces in society that make him meaningless. That's what happens when we don't engage in conflict amongst each other. Let's reverse it. Let's say little Johnny believes that the wall is blue, but it's red. And he says to his parents, mom, that, that wall is blue. No, Johnny, the wall is red. Let me teach you what the Johnny, little Johnny grows and learns that the wall isn't blue. It's red. You know, I, I'm not meaning to pick political colors. Forgive me. Uh, 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 so growth comes from conflict discussion. You know, I have a dear friend who's who, who I won't mention. Who's, I'm a I'm a, a typical uh, I'm a uh, I'm a straight guy. I tend to lean a little fiscally conservative. I tend to be sort of socially liberal in many ways. I have a friend of mine who's who is a bleeding heart liberal, gay guy, 
opposite to me in every conceivable way. I can't think of anybody in the world I love more than him. And, and, and you know, I've realized that, that I don't want to suppress the people who disagree with me's views, too, because every time I talk to people on the other side, mm-hmm. I learn something. Sometimes I move a little their way. You'd be amazed what happens when we talk to each other. And one thing for sure, nothing happens when we don't. So I'm a proponent of what I call constructive conflict, not destructive conflict. I'm a proponent of saying what you believe if it's honest and if it's sincere. And I believe that if there are ideals that are important to you, you should speak up. If there are things that mean something to you in a family environment or work, you should speak up and you should always do it in a constructive way that takes you down a path that benefits you or them or but serves a benefit. So that was the purpose of that book to say conflict isn't bad. It's good. And it can be really good if we do it constructively and it can help you grow and learn the other side. And the more we learn about the other sides, whatever that other side is to us, the better we all are. So that was the point of that book was to hope that I could get more people of opposite views to just talk to each other and not be scared to say what they think. And in an era like this, that is particularly divisive. I mean, I th- once again, you've, you've seen it all. Okay, so you've seen environments that were diff- different than this, but this this environment currently is one, uni- I believe, uniquely divisive and also, two, uniquely harmful or uniquely risky to those who speak out or people who might be loud, might be brash, might be unapologetic. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah, but also, you know, I also uh, uh, say that you know, Elvis Presley, interesting man, once they asked him what his view of the Vietnam War was. And his answer was, you know, I'm just an entertainer. My view should mean nothing to you. Something similar to that. You know, entertainers should entertain. I'm not certain everybody should get involved in politics. People get caught with their pants down. They say things that aren't true. They say the wrong thing. They have to back up from positions. It gets very, very ugly sometimes. And, you know, I I am a public. I hate to I never thought of myself as this, but I'm an entertainer. Yeah. And my political view shouldn't mean anything to anyone else. Mm-hmm. You should have your own political views. I'm an entertainer. Now, I am not a political person. I'm a policy person. I like policies that grow small business, that don't contract or, or, or strangle small business. I like policies that provide personal freedom. I like policies that are fiscally responsible. I worry about our grandchildren. So, so you know, I'm very about policies, not sides. Practical. That your your participation in public public affairs is from a practical perspective. It's not just so you get to have a pl- use your platform to spout off your personal views about a subject that nobody follows you for in the first place. Bingo. So if I go on a business network uh, and I'll talk about you know the the, the policy issues uh, uh, that impact restaurants, I'm not going to talk about this guy versus that guy. I don't go there because. You know, some guy has a good policy here and a bad policy there. So yeah, I'm a so so when I take a look at my responsibility, my responsibility is I believe that I am a family and a small business advocate. Mm-hmm. So I look at policies that empower those two groups of people, and those are the things that I stand up for. What are some of the policies that you think are relevant right now that people are arguing about or some or advocating for that might be relevant to those situations? You know, it's interesting. I was looking at the UAW strikes. I was looking at the actor strike, uh, uh, the SAG strike, and, and, and uh, uh, some others now, the medical strikes. 
And every one of them talked about the fact that their salary hasn't kept up with inflation. In every one of these strikes, in every one of these labor discussions right now, and believe me, I feel for these employees because what they're saying is correct. They got a 5% raise, inflation hit them by 8%, so they're in a whole 3%. I get it. <laughs> that sucks. And we don't want that to happen as employers. Of course, we want our people to be ahead of that curve and be happy and stay with us and have quality of life. Those are the things that matter to us as employers. But if inflation, if the policies that caused inflation did not take place, the disposition amongst these labor discussions would be very different. The purpose of these labor discussions would be very different. And the attitudes of these people would be very different, of the workers would be very different. So my point is this, the economic environment creates pressures on family, on people that now they have to move to their employer and reapply that pressure because the only person who can fix it for them obviously is not the government. They're not doing it. The employer has to fix it with more money. So that's the result of policy. And when we look at the impact that policy is having on labor now, it breaks my heart as an employer. I want my employees to do great, man. I want them to stay with me forever. I'm fighting government policies to make my people happy. It shouldn't be that way. And then when I look at the other inflationary impacts and cost and labor and insurance, you know, I, I pay 80% of my employees' medical insurance. I've done that forever. Other companies pay 20%. You know, I only make them pay a token amount because my view is, you know, if I'm going to pay for it, you should kick in something. <laughs> Show me at least one and I'll yeah, pay for it. We both so, have skin in the game. Yep. So I like to do those things. But but man, because I want to do those things, I'm getting destroyed. So I want to go. I have no boss to go to and say, hey, help me out here. So policies is what drives these things. And, and yeah, you think about inflation with with gas alone. Like I sit around and thinking, you know, I'm blessed to be a a, a white collar professional. There are blue collar people who are out there working on somewhat of a fixed income. They may get a raise each year, but they they don't have the ability to make more money February than they did January. Gas costs went up. 60 50, at least 50 percent more like 60 percent like that has a severe impact on someone who is live, living you know month to month or making you know uh, making their their way in the blue collar world i mean that's got to be you know you as a as a, a a an employer and a restaurant owner can't just sit idly by and say well okay that doesn't matter i can't really get involved in that i mean that's having a direct impact on the people who work for you i'm here in arizona i filled up my tank yesterday i paid 608 a gallon Insane. You know, there's something called, you know, laying the field for the past year. The political world has laid the field. We were we were all screaming and yelling five dollar gas, five dollar gas. Well, it's six dollars now and nobody's saying anything. That's everyone so just they've got... laid the field. Yeah, they've made these things acceptable. So, you know, the policy has happened. Gas is now six dollars a gallon. The inflation has happened. And the employee who works hard. And, you know, my wife and I talk about this all the time. I tear up. It breaks my heart. That guy who works really hard, you know, and makes X amount of dollars a year and has three kids. And how often does he say no to his kids today because of government policies? You know, and, and that is the crux of what a bad policy does. It makes a parent say no to a child. It makes an employer say no to an employee. And the chain of support breaks down because the economic balance of it is disrupted. Policy, you know, regulatory policy, taxing policy, overspending policies. These are the things that I focus on very much as an individual. I want to see more small businesses. You know, I drive through Main Street. Youngstown, Ohio is a great example a few years ago. Every store is empty. 
People see empty stores. I think of the family that put their last dollar, had a dream, opened a store in that space. They were so excited opening day. They put every dime, they worked, the kids came, They and now it's gone. It's not an empty store. It's lost dreams. And in many cases, those dreams were lost because of policies. And I, I ask people to put po politics aside and look at policies and make decisions when you vote on policies, not politics. Material circumstances, not these lofty, not these lofty principles and hashtags, the material things that impact the material circumstances of people who deserve to have good ones. Yes. And what policies matter to you and your family? Vote to protect those policies. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what I do. Yep. No, it's a definitely clear headed view on that. Um, you have experienced a lot of success as a performer right off the bat. You clearly have some skills as a broadcaster, performer, someone on camera. And this is something that seems to have come naturally to you. You know, I think relatively I was able to, to do it without too much training, but it's something that's a completely foreign skill to the majority of people out there. Um, what do you, you know, and particularly in this day and age with so much noise, with so much, uh, so many options in such a fragmented media environment, um, how do you as a, think about as a broadcaster cutting through all that noise? What, what do you think about being a compelling broadcaster broadcaster, um, whether it's something that did come naturally to you that you just realized you do naturally or something that you had to notice and then deliberately implement into your, your broadcasting rapport. Uh, interesting that you say that because uh, most broadcasters would bomb if you put them in front of an audience, mm -hmm. uh, 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 in my view. Uh, probably 80 or a huge percentage would bomb if you put them in front of an audience. And I do all the time. And my TV show and stuff, I put them in front of camera, radio people and all sorts. I was a public speaker for the past 35 years. I've given hundreds and hundreds of speeches all over the world. When I say something, I'm looking at the faces of a thousand people. If it doesn't work, I know it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. If it works, I know it. If I'm losing them in energy 20 minutes in, I feel it. I know it. I know what tools I've developed to bring that energy back. I know how to control the energy of the room. I know if I'm in the middle of a sentence and I'm losing them, I change mid-sentence to another topic and I see them perk up. Okay. I navigate. I manipulate. As you know, I'm all about reactions. When you're doing it in a format that we're in right now, sure, we have each other, which is great. But so many people in broadcast are just talking to a microphone and they're not even interacting with somebody. Uh, 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 you don't have those affirmations of what's working and what's not working. And you're in a reaction business too. But the difference is the broadcast person is in a reaction business. They don't get to see the reactions in real time. I did. So 30 years of public speaking, I got to hone the words that I use, the phrasing that I use. So many of the things we've talked about today, the exact sentences I use in public speaking, the phrasing I've developed in public speaking. I know how to break my thoughts through quickly because of public speaking. I know how to do it in few words if I need to because of public speaking. I know when to drop the joke in because of public speaking. I know when to get serious, when to lower my voice, when to raise my voice. So all of this comes from the knowledge of performing in front of an audience. And so many broadcast people didn't come up in that side of the business. And I can tell more often than not uh, uh, when I listen to them, if they came up in a, in a live world or not, uh, uh, because those that, that come up in a live world manage energy, pace, flow, mm. and languaging better. 
Yeah, I could imagine so. I mean, no, no, nothing like being thrown right into the fire there. And I mean, in tar- terms of the power of conflict, it's almost like a uh, 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 approaching conflict with yourself because that's such everybody's most deep-seated fear is a fear of public speaking. And and approaching that conflict with your own fears about that can be such a, a transformative and transcendent experience. And it's fun for me because, you know, I'm not a spring chicken. I'm getting older. And for example, this year I did a Gary V's conference uh, uh, and a very, very young audience. And I say to myself, boy, I, I want to be relevant to this young audience. So, but, you know, it, it's no different than speaking to an older audience. When you look at people's faces and you see what they react to and you, 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 your, your goal is to create reactions from them, then you land where you need to with every group. And, you know, and you adapted real time. That's what I've gotten good at. That's why I'm good on TV. No doubt. And as you mentioned with the, it's interesting that you mentioned the the football coach or uh, uh, getting through to the youth with a, a younger audience with a Gary Vee because it's something, uh, uh, hearkening back to, you know, the notion of you being good as a football coach, that was something that was expressed on hard knocks that some of the new coaches these days have to be louder because now, you know, they're dealing with, they're dealing with young players that are so distracted by their phones, like being a coach and figuring out how to break through the noise these days is even more of a challenge, which segments me to my last question here, which is fascinating as I mentioned you kind of the Z-Lig, kind of the Forrest Gump of the hospitality and media world and that you've popped up in all these amazing uh, uh, various different settings and one that you popped up in. Uh, you came up with NFL Sunday Ticket. I mean, this is fascinating because I, I once had on, I don't know if you know, Marty Kallner. Um, he, he's the creator of Hard Knocks and just the most renowned music video director you ever find. I had him on a few months ago and it was fascinating to see the hear the genesis of Hard Knocks. And now I'd love to hear, you know, how you got involved in that. Like all of a sudden, hospitality, restaurant, bar world. And wait a second, he also was the it, it conceived of NFL Sunday Ticket. How did that happen? Well, it's a great story. I'll tell it to you quickly. So uh, in 1995 or so, I won the Operator of the Year Award. And that same year, a company called ComSat, which is a Maryland-based company, they have acres and acres of uplink satellite dishes. They manage all the satellites in space. They manage the signals bouncing and all the elements to make it work, including our military satellites. And it's called ComSat. And they hired me and they said, listen, we want to hire your company to do a consulting project. We think we want to buy out-of-market sports programming and resell it in a city. So in Los Angeles, you could buy, for example, the Dallas Cowboys signal. So you'd get the local coach show, and you'd get to see the Dallas game. And you'd pay for that, was the premise. So they said to me, so our thought is that sports bars would buy it, bars and everything would buy it. Could you do a feasibility study for us? A, will they buy it? B, what would they afford to pay? So sure. So we go to work, we put together, this is what I do, I'm very good at it. We put together a very thick feasibility document of industry characteristics, size of the market universe, et cetera. What we think people could pay based upon per seat uh, and the fact that they, they it has to be a revenue center. It can't be an expense center. It has to bring bodies through the door so they need marketing materials and all that kind of stuff to make it work. So we prepare this document and we give it to ComSat and they say, wow, this is great. Do another study for us. Tell us what the product would look like. So now we get hired by them again. They're paying us dearly for this work. So now we do another thing to develop the product. While we were creating that document, something happened called compression. Before compression, to get seven football games at once, you needed seven of those huge analog dishes. You needed a quarter acre behind your bar to stack all these dishes. You can remember those days. And they wouldn't let you put them on roofs because they were too big and the wind, et cetera. For your bar venues, I didn't even think of that. 
So all these dishes now to get all the football games. Well, compression happened, and compression enabled one transponder to receive multiple signals. Changed the world of satellite transmission. Well, when that happened in the middle of that document, that's when we said, hold on. Why not give them all seven games? It was seven games at the same time, then morning and afternoon. Why not give them all seven games? Why not create a compressed product category where the guy in Atlanta can have the teams that are most important to the Atlanta Falcons and the guy in Dallas can have the teams in that region or that division. And why don't we, so we created this package of seven games at once and, and advertising and working it and having different areas. And we put the whole thing together. So we hand them that document. Then they come back a third time and say, who would buy this, John? Prepare a last document for us of the universe. So Fridays, you know, Angus, Joe's Sports Bar. So we put together a document of a couple of thousand people that we think would buy it. And now they know what it, what the industry would pay for it. They have what it looks like, and they have the universe. They go to the NFL to license the signal. The NFL says, wow, this is terrific. Let's do it ourselves. They choose to do it themselves, <laughs> and they put me on the board of NFL Enterprises for three years, and we turned it into Sunday Ticket. And there Wild. you go. Incredible. Incredible. Yeah. These, as I said, these skills, these observations, the ability to notice, innovate, create, it translates across every field. I mean, particularly ones that uh, are, are in the business of showing people a good time, entertaining people, bringing them great experiences. And that's what you've done for so long. And, you know, it's it's really inspiring also to see you helping. As we mentioned before, you're de- dealing with these situations with failed dreams, broken dreams of families, simple people who just want to make a better life for themselves and their families. And you're able to go go ahead and give them a better shot at making it to the promised land or getting out of the situation that they're in. And John, it's, it's, you know, surely been, it's a fascinating career and you continue to be involved in fascinating stuff. It was a pleasure speaking. I wanted to thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. I just want to leave you with a final thought, you know, to think that my television career allows me to go into people's lives and, and save them in some ways and set them up for financials is an amazing blessing. At the end of every bar rescue, two things happen. I get the proverbial check and I get a hug. That hug means so much more than that check. It's an incredible thing to get a hug and have that person say, thank you, John, you really changed everything for me. So, so uh, bar rescue is a blessing and it's something that, you know, I, I will do as long as I can because that hug is so powerful and helping every family you can means something. Absolutely. So that, that is, we are in the business of reactions and meaningful hugs John, thank you so much once again. Where can everybody, obviously, uh, tons of people watch Bar Rescue, but where can they find you on the internet or, or any? Uh, oh, I'm easy. John, J O N Taffer. Uh, uh, JohnTaffer.com is my website. John Taffer on Instagram. John Taffer every place else. Keeping it nice and simple. Well, thank you once again, everybody. This is the Prevailing Narrative. I am Matt Belinsky. Once again, you can listen and subscribe to The Prevailing Narrative on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Make sure to follow me on my socials at Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. Thanks once again so much, everybody. This is The Prevailing Narrative. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. 
Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 